meeting Jesus in the mundane, everyday world. Last week, we stressed the supernatural aspects of the birth and life of Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man. We saw that the supernatural is foundational to understanding the birth and life of Jesus. If you do away with the supernatural, throw away the angel, throw away him coming from glory as the Son of God, throw away the miracles, and you don't have Christ. You don't have Jesus of the Gospels. But because of this emphasis on the supernatural, the church, the people of God, is, have often spent an inordinate amount of energy and time looking for the supernatural to happen in their lives. Last week, we saw that indeed the supernatural has happened in the life of every believer as the Holy Spirit has transformed us from the inside out. The rebirth is not an external reformation of our lives through obedience. It is an internal. It is an internal transformation that is brought about only by the Holy Spirit. However, that rebirth is usually not accompanied by angels, by miracles, by outward manifestations of nature-altering events. Think about those disciples. We did last week. We saw that there were weeks and months in their relationship with Jesus that the disciples were seeing miracles every day. They were seeing men and women blind from birth or for years being made to see immediately just at the word from Jesus that paraplegics were walking at the command of Christ, that the dead were raised. And they saw things like this on a daily basis. Imagine what that meant to the disciples. They were encountering the supernatural work of Jesus every day in their lives. I would like that. thought about this all week, what that, what that would have been like, just walking with those disciples, watching what Jesus said and did. We can understand why some Christians might spend their lives looking for that angel looking for that immediate, miraculous healing. Jesus came to Zacharias, to Mary, to Joseph, to the shepherds, accompanied by angels, accompanied by miracles. But have you ever seen an angel? I haven't. Have Michael or Gabriel come to your home and made themselves known there? Have you seen anyone simply command a paraplegic to get up and walk and he gets up and walks? A blind person that he commands to see and the person immediately sees. 
you ever had a vision from heaven like John had in the book of Revelation? So after that, <clears throat> after that message last week, we've got to ask the question, where and how does Jesus meet with his people in this mundane, vulgar, if you will, everyday world? Does he really meet with us down in the routine of our lives? Those are the questions before the house this morning. Where does Jesus meet with his people in this mundane, everyday world? As we look at this passage, I want us to see first, this message, by the way, is no way exhaustive in answering those questions. There's many, many answers to that question in Scripture. We're just going to look at four. Jesus meets with his people in their worship. Where were Simeon and Anna when they saw and recognized Jesus? Let's, let's look at it. Look at verse 26. And it had been revealed to him, Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Look at verse 37. Speaking of Anna, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began giving thanks to God to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Where were Simeon and Anna when they saw Jesus? They were in the temple. They were in the temple of God, where the people of God met for prayer and worship. Think about that temple for a minute. Listen to what God said about the temple of Israel in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. It's on your scripture sheet. If my people, you know this verse, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. When, when did God say that? This was when Israel was moving into the temple that he had used Solomon to build. This was the opening of the temple. And he goes on to say, after he says that, that verse that we've quoted so often, look at verse 15. Now my eyes will be open. This is what God is saying. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Simeon and Anna had been going to that temple all their lives for prayer, for worship. It is where they spoke to God and God spoke to them. That's where they were when they recognized Jesus. Simeon had been led there that specific day by the Holy Spirit. That's what we saw. He went, in the, he went in the Spirit to the temple. When Simeon had uttered the prophecy about the child Jesus and about Mary, Anna was there. She heard that. And she was speaking to everyone saying, this is the one. This is the one. This is the child born to Israel of whom Isaiah spoke. 
Think about it. Simeon and Anna, in their everyday lives, had been meeting God in the temple for decades. God had been speaking to them and guiding them through his word and through his spirit. And that's where they were when they encountered Jesus. And you say, well, John, we don't have a temple. Yes, we do. The temple is not in Jerusalem today. The temple is not in heaven today. The church of Jesus Christ is the temple. Look on your scripture sheet at 2 Corinthians 6.16. Listen to this. For we are the temple. Say that in your head. We are the temple. And he's not speaking to the individual being the temple. It's there. We are the temple of the living God. He's speaking to the church. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will will be their God and they shall be my people. Look at Ephesians 2, 21. In whom the whole structure has been joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. If there were no building here, isn't it wonderful we're adding on to this building now? But if there were no building here and we were meeting in the open air, we would still be the temple. When we become casual about our attendance, well, I don't know whether I'll go to church this morning or not. When we really don't care whether we're gathering with the church to worship, do you understand that we're saying, I'm not going to meet with God this morning? That's where he dwells together with his people. Jesus said we're two or three. Do you not think it's important? Jesus said it's so important that whenever two or three gather, not two or three thousand, not two or three hundred, but where two or three gather in my name, I will be there. He thinks that's important. I loved the ministry of Charles Colson. It was sad when he went home to be with the Lord. When God took over Colson's life, he used him as a powerful writer. He wrote a lot of books. One of my favorites is Loving God. I would commend that to you. If you see Loving God by Charles Colson, at least read the first part of it. Fantastic book. He wrote Kingdoms in Conflict about God and government. In fact, I think that book has been retitled God and Government. It would be good to read now. He wrote another one called Against the Night. He was writing back in 88, 89, 90, I think was when that book was written. And he was talking about what was happening then and how it was going to affect the nation. This last year, the last two or three years, I have thought about that book over and over again because he was was saying then, looking around him and saying, let me tell you what's going to happen in our country. And he was described in that country what is happening now. But he not only used him as a powerful writer, he called Colson to build churches, to build temples. And he called them to build them. He called him to build them in the most unusual places. We call it prison ministry. (laughs) I don't like that term. I prefer to say that God called Colson and people like him to build temples in the darkest places on earth. He went to places that held criminals, 
murderers, rapists, pedophiles, thieves, all of, all of the criminals gathered together in this place. And he called him, you go there into that place and build a temple where God will dwell. He would go to a, to a prison and spend some time and leave behind the temple of God in that prison. Where can we go and meet with Jesus in the mundane, everyday world? We meet with him in the worship of God's people. We meet with him in his temple. And he builds those temples in the darkest places. Secondly, Jesus comes to his people in their everyday work and calling. <clears throat> Look at Luke 2.8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. The shepherds were not in the temple. Where were they when the angels appeared? It wasn't, they, they, they weren't, the angels weren't a choir in the temple. They were, the shepherds were at their place of employment. They were on the farm. They were in the fields tending the sheep. <clears throat> Where was Mary when the angel came to her? She was in her home in Nazareth going through the routine of the week. She's preparing for a wedding. When we leave the temple, when we leave the meeting of God's people, do we leave God behind? You know better than that. We go to our work every day with that changed heart, with the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Last night, I was at a, a party, and a member of our church came up to me and said, I have Jesus in me. He didn't know I was preaching this today. I'm at this party, but I have Jesus in me. <clears throat> I love verses like Judges 6, 11. Let me read it to you. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Here's this angel, and he comes and sits under the terebinth, sits under the terebinth, and where is he? Gideon's hard at work, thrashing the wheat, trying to hide it from the marauding Midianites. I love that verse. In some shape and form, it's repeated over and over and over again in Scripture as God shows up in the everyday work world of his people. Gideon was thrashing wheat, and there's an angel. I read a prayer this week that a man prays every day when he goes to work. This is what he prays. Holy God, the money I offer in your house on Sunday will result from my work today. Hear my prayer, that I may work with honesty, integrity, accuracy, and so make both work and worship offerings acceptable to you. What is he saying? Just as I go to church to worship, worship you with hymns and prayers, worship you with my giving, I offer that up to you. So I offer my daily work up to you. 
What did, what did, he, what did Paul write in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, 31, I mean? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He doesn't say just sing hymns to the glory of God. What do you do? You eat, you drink, you work, whatever it is. You do it to the glory of God. You can even go into battle. Real war with prayer, speaking to God. Jacob Astley was a leader in the Royalist Army in the Battle of Edge Hill in 1642. A prayer that he prayed became famous as he went into battle. O Lord, thou knowest how busy I must be this day. If I forget thee in the heat of this battle, do not thou forget me. I heard a nurse practitioner talking about how she deals with her everyday appointments. She said, you know, I have the... the I see the name, here's the name, the time. I have all these appointments during the day. I know that they're there. She said, I look at those appointments as divine appointments. That's just good theology. When, when I heard her say that, I said, that lady's a theologian. She understands that as she moves through her day, she is encased, encompassed by the providence of God. She understood that this is a divine appointment. Where can we meet with Jesus in this mundane, everyday world? We meet with him in the worship of God's people. Jesus comes to his people in their everyday work and calling. Thirdly, Jesus comes to his people in the midst of their horrific anguish and pain and sorrow. You know, when things are so bad and so dark and we're so hurting, where's God? I tried to. In thinking about this, I tried to pick out the worst situation. There was a man living in Judah who was a contemporary to Jesus. He lived in the, in the Jerusalem area the same time as Jesus. However, they were quite different. Undoubtedly, he had heard of Jesus. This miracle worker claimed to be the Messiah of Israel was known to everyone in the country. However, this man was a criminal. He made his way in life by stealing from other people. He was arrested. He was convicted of his crimes. He was sentenced to a horrid execution by crucifixion. That's where he encountered Jesus. In the midst of his greatest anguish and pain and sorrow, nails were driven into his hands and feet. He was pinned by those nails to Roman cross beams. And there he was dying a shameful death, lifted up on the cross for the world to see. This was it. This pretender Messiah was being crucified with him. And he and a companion criminal railed. Matthew says they railed, both of them railed against Jesus. But as he watched and heard Jesus suffering, the same death he was suffering, he changed. 
somehow he realized this man indeed was the Messiah. And he made a statement that I find incredible. As he watched this man dying, as he watched him dying, what did he say? What did the thief say to him? Lord, remember me. Remember me. Would you come into your kingdom? He knew he was a king. What a statement of faith in that horrid place. Jesus did not take away his excruciating pain. There was no angel, no miracle that day, not not a miracle. Just the gracious words of salvation. Today, son, you will be with me in paradise. I want to to hear his testimony one day in person. I really do. I want to be there as he speaks of the day he was crucified at the place of the skull with a man named Jesus. He will say, I met Jesus in the midst of the worst anguish and pain and sorrow of my life. That's where he came to me. We meet him with the worship of God's people. Jesus comes to his people in their everyday work and calling. Jesus comes to his people in the midst of their horrific anguish pain and sorrow. Fourthly, finally, he comes to his people even in the midst of rebellion, in the midst of their rebellion, in their sin. Look at Luke 2, 11. This is what he said to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, a Savior, not just a Christ, Not just the anointed Messiah, but first and foremost, a Savior. What? A Savior from the Romans? (laughs) What was it the angel said to Joseph? You know, it was a father that named the child. That's why he said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. Didn't say his name shall be Jesus. He said, you shall name him Jesus. Why? The name Jesus, the name Joshua, the same as the Old Testament name Joshua. It means Savior. You name him Jesus because he'll be a Savior. He'll save sinners. Jesus, Son of God, why have you come to seek and to save sinners? In Luke 15, 1 through 7. Jesus is questioned about why he is eating and drinking with known sinners. It's where he tells the story of the good shepherd. The good shepherd had had all his sheep and there was one that strayed. And so he went out in the wilderness of sin to find the stray. Have you, have you not thought as a Christian? I've certainly thought this. The father can never forgive me for this. Jesus will not forgive this heinous sin. Jesus will not, God cannot forgive my hypocrisy, my adultery, my perversity, my lying, my cheating, my arrogance, my selfishness, my unfaithfulness. Have we not all thought those thoughts? 
Those thoughts are not from God. They're from the pit of hell. They're from Satan. Satan stands as the accuser. Look how filthy you are. Your life drips with the filth and stench of sin. There's no hope for you. It was 1 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Some people would have said it was Saturday night, but no, it was after midnight. <clears throat> Sunday had begun. I walked into a dive to a bar in Midtown. It was not even a good bar. It was dark in every way. I sat at the end of the bar. A young man who tending bar looked over and saw me. He knew me. He smiled. He walked over. And he said, John? I knew you would show up here sooner or later. He had returned to his life of immorality and addiction. For a year, he had been in church every Sunday. Bible in hand, laughing in the light of the gospel that he had discovered. But now he had strayed. I had not seen him for months. How did he know I would show up in his dark world? Those were his first words. I knew sooner or later you would show up. He knew the gospel. That's what Jesus does. He goes and seeks sinners. I love the picture of the prodigal returning home and the father running down the road. The father he had offended. That he had left, give me your money and leave me alone. And now he's coming home broken. And the father is running down the road to meet him. That father represents God, people. This Christmas, have you strayed? Are you so deep into sin that you feel that there's no hope? Know this. In that original advent, Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. We meet with him in the worship of God's people. Jesus comes to his people in their everyday work and calling. Jesus comes to his people in the midst of their horrific anguish, pain, and sorrow. He even comes to his people in the midst of their rebellion and sin. Those are the, that's how you answer the question. Do you understand? You don't need to see angels. We don't need to see the miraculous. He is there every day at every place in our lives. I spent this week looking back at the life of David. Remarkable. The greatest king of Israel until Jesus. Man after God's own heart. That's what God said. Go through. Read his life. There were no angels. We don't see a host of miracles in his life like we see with Elijah and Elisha, Moses. We don't see the miracles 
We just see a man living his life through the most difficult circumstances, through grave danger, hardship, civil strife, personal sin and rebellion against God. And his God and his Savior was there every step of the way. And David knew it. Back in November, I closed a message in the middle of November with a quote that someone sent me that week from Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And I know it was only a month ago, but I had to come back to it because it speaks directly to these questions that were before the house this morning. Browning wrote, Earth's crammed, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush is a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. That quote from Browning alludes to Moses at the burning bush. God was present. Moses saw and he took off his shoes. Browning was saying, that's what happens in our everyday life. Earth is crammed with heaven. Browning said that most people would see the burning bush, see the presence of God every day, and just keep picking their wilderness blackberries. Jesus and his word, the Father, the Holy Spirit are around us in our everyday world. We don't need to see angels. The extraordinary is there for us to see and hear. Earth crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. Amen. Our hymn is most...